Hello everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. Hey everybody, happy 4th of July. What better way to celebrate the 4th by listening to a podcast on labor. The Philadelphia strike followed much the same as that in New York. The waste makers faced and police brutality and the magistrate of Philadelphia were eager to sentence pickets to the county prison. The Central Labor Union endorsed the strike and many trade unions supported it. WTUL leaders Margaret Dreyer, Robbins, and Agnes Nestor hurried from Chicago to Philly and opened an office in the heart of the factory district, where pickets could report and strikers could receive sandwiches and coffee. With their production almost completely halted by the Philly strike, the New York Manufacturers Association was more inclined to seek a settlement. On December 23rd, employers and union officials agreed on a compromise. The employers conceded to the demands of the workers for shorter hours, higher wages, and prompt consideration of an entire list of grievances, but they refused to recognize the union or to establish the closed shop or union shop. The work week would be reduced to 52 hours. There was to be no discrimination against union members. Needles, thread, and appliances were to be supplied free by the employers, as far as practical, equal work was to be given during the slow seasons. Four paid holidays annually were to be granted. All shops were to establish wage committees, and all strikers were to be reemployed, and no other hired until this was accomplished. On December 27th, the settlement was put to a vote by all union members. Since many of the women working in non-association independent shops had earlier gained full recognition, it was hardly to be expected that the strikers in the association shops would settle for less. Addressing the strikers, Morris Hillquit, Socialist Party leader, collectively the waste makers are strong. Individually, they are helpless and defenseless. If the employers were today to concede all the demands of the strikers, but be allowed to destroy or even weaken the union, they could and would restore the old conditions of servitude in their shops within a very few weeks or months. The strikers overwhelmingly disapproved the post-settlement. The climax of the New York strike occurred on January 2, 1910 at Carnegie Hall. The audience sat spellbound as speaker after speaker heaped accusations and recriminations up on the heads of New York's public officials. On the stage, the front row sat 20 strikers who had been arrested by the police and fined by the magistrates 
Following the Carnegie Hall meeting, the State Bureau of Medication attempted to resolve the remaining questions in dispute between the union and the association. While Local 25 was willing to discuss the open or closed shop, the Manufacturers Association refused. By the beginning of February, the strikers' resources nearing depletion and with the society women showing a growing coolness toward the struggle, the end was inevitable. The union was compelled to sign agreements with many of the larger shops without either recognition of the union or endorsement of the union shop. It was on the basis that the Triangle Waste Company settled with the strikers in the first week of February. By the second week of February, almost the entire trade union had resumed operations, and those few strikers who stubbornly had hoped for more returned to their shops. But Agnes Nestor, before returning to Chicago, urged the waste makers to build up the union so that when the time comes to make another agreement, you will be in a position to get better terms. Nestor was either too polite or too cautious to add that the settlement was probably the best the Philly women strikers could gain since they also had to overcome the lukewarm attitude of the male-dominated union leadership. The lack of enthusiasm of many of the male workers and a similar lack of enthusiasm on the part of the male union in the city. Not only did mail cutters and markers in the shirtwaist shop not go on strike until four days after the walkout by the women began, they also returned to work three days before the women settled. Women who had worked 60 or more hours a week before the strike in New York now had a guaranteed work week of 52 hours, and in New York they were paid time and a half for overtime. Workers no longer had to pay for power and materials and other impositions had also been eliminated. Most importantly, nearly 20,000 had joined Local 25 and 10,000 had become members of Local 15 during the strike. Within months, wastemakers were coming to the WTUL to report violations and shop strikes were becoming increasingly common. Unfortunately, a number of union leaders, instead of blaming this on the weakness in the settlement, attributed the to the main illness through our Jewish organizing strike fever. Both contemporary and later accounts agree that young Italian women not only refused to come out of the shops, but also took the place of Jewish strikers. Despite the fact that they made up at least one-fourth of the labor force in the waste industry, only 2,000 of the strikers were Italians. However, the ILGWU had no Italian-speaking organizers and had to depend on English to inform Italian strikers of development. And that the Italian and Jewish women strikers divide by the language barrier met separately a situation that did not build solidarity. Finally, the wastemakers did not have the full support of either the international or labor movement as a whole because a large percentage of the strikers were women, while the union officials were men. To a remarkable extent, the strike did just that. Women of the upper class, wrote Helen Merritt, who came to act as witnesses of arrests around the factories ended by picketing side by side with the strikers. Mary Durham, a league official who wrote to Agnes Nestor in February 1910, Isn't it good to see this sisterhood of women at last really demonstrated in the active interest of women of wealth and leisure? Good to see them take up some of the crying needs of their sister women who are out in the world of work struggling for a living. 
and yet there is no justification for the conclusion drawn by some later historians that it was the rich women who made victory for the shirtwaist workers possible. It was the female garment workers themselves, their militancy and endurance in manning the picket lines in frigid weather and in sustaining beatings, arrests, and imprisonment, and not the supportive activities of what Roche Schneiderman called the Mink Brigade that made the victory possible. In its report dealing with this strike, the WTUL pointed out it is untrue to state, as has been stated, that the League financed and led the strike. The strike was organized and led by the Union. Despite all the controversy provoked by its activities, they did help to attract working women to the organization. The strike was also brought to the fore several able and intelligent working women who became active participants in both the ILGW and the WTUL. Clara Limlick, famous for her Cooper Union speech, Pauline Newman, and Molly Schnapps, an American-born dressmaker, joined the league during the strike and soon became members of its executive board. In this struggle, very young women, most of them recent immigrants, working primarily at an unskilled trade, were able to gain important concessions from their employers. Without preparation or finances, the women had walked the picket lines through the rain and snow, remaining solid in spite of beatings, arrest, fines, and failing. They had laid the foundation for their future gains. Their conditions and struggles had gained the attention of the middle class and well-to-do individuals in New York, and their strike marked the first time these individuals were actively involved in championing the cause of the working masses. Two years later, after the uprising of the 20,000, the wastemaker struggle played an important role in the establishment of International Women's Day. For it was a demonstration on March 8, 1908, in New York City of women workers in the needle trades that influenced Clara Zetkin at the International Socialist Congress in 1910 to move that the day of the demonstration of the American working women become an International Women's Day and that March 8th each year be dedicated to fighting for equal rights for all women in all countries. Under the leadership of Zetkin, the German Socialist Party women spokesperson, the first International Women's Day celebration was held in Copenhagen that year. We can see just how strong these women were. The labor movement made a major mistake by not including women in the movement from day one and the unions would have gained so much power by moving beyond the biases of the times. We have looked at positive results at the uprising of the 20,000, but we also need to look at the negative results in response to the uprising. Five months after the shirt waste makers had returned to work, another more extensive general strike paralyzed the ladies' garment trade. In July 1910, some 60,000 workers employed in the cloak and suit branch of the industry left their workbenches and marched to the picket lines. In 1910, New York City cloaks, suits, and shirts were manufactured in about 1,500 shops, employing about 40,000 Jewish workers and 10,000 to 20,000 Italian workers. After 1890, partly because legislation outlawing homework and had virtually ended sweatshops, many small shops had sprung up 
The newer clothing factories used lighter, better, and more specialized machinery ran by steam or electricity. Women made up about 10% of the workforce in this branch of the industry, working as helpers in the finishing department and earned $3 a week. The cloakmaker's strike was carefully planned. Their officers had anticipated the strike, had prepared adequate funds, and enjoyed the full support of the international union. Strike agitation had begun in August 1908, and by the spring of 1909, about 2,000 members had been recruited by the New York Joint Board Cloak and Shirt Makers Union. In July 1910, a secret ballot on the general strike issue showed 18,777 for striking and 615 against. And a committee decided on the following set of demands. Union recognition, the 48-hour work week, double pay for overtime, and the abolition of subcontracting. The cloakmakers began at once to negotiate with the smaller employers, who could not afford a long, drawn-out conflict, and who rushed to arrange satisfactory agreements. A number of these larger cloak manufacturers thereupon formed the Cloak, Suit, and Shirt Manufacturers Protective Association and pledged not to bargain with the cloakmakers' union. Even though women workers made up a small minority of the strike force, they quickly assumed important positions in the organization. For example, Dora Landberg, who had grown up in the cloak-making trade, enthusiastically directed the strike headquarters, coordinated the picketing, and dispatched aid to arrested strikers who requested bail. John Deitch, the ILGWU's national secretary slash treasurer, Having learned something from the previous strike, requested help from the League and named Helen Merritt and Leonora O'Reilly to the Cloakmakers Strike Committee. The union leaders appointed Merritt and Ross Schneiderman to negotiate a settlement with those manufacturers who employed female alteration hands. League members formed a committee that raised money to distribute 209,000 quarts of milk to strikers' children. After mediation efforts by the State Bureau of Arbitration had failed, the association refused to enter into negotiations until the union agreed to abandon its demand for recognition and the closed shop. Deitch and the majority of the strike committee agreed to eliminate the closed shop from the list of the union's basic demands, but the more radical of the union's executive officers, as well as most of the rank and file, declined to accept the arbitration without some consideration of the closed shop issue. In fact, active personal intervention of Samuel Gompers was needed before indignant union leaders and members would agree to enter a conference with the employers on July 28th. The conference quickly came to an understanding on the union's basic demands except the closed shop with the association offering the preferential shop. Justice John W. Goff of the New York Supreme Court made the injunction against the strikers permanent. Goff belted the strike a common law civil conspiracy to obtain the closed shop and thereby to deprive non-union men and women of the opportunity to work and drive them out of the industry. The police were authorized to disperse all pickets, peaceful or otherwise. For the first time in the history of labor disputes in the state, an injunction not only permanently restrained men from peaceful picketing, but also forbade them to interfere in any way at all with those who wished to work.
Julius Henry Cohen, the attorney for the manufacturers, described the injunction as the strongest one ever handed down by an American court against trade unionism. And the New York Evening Post, which seldom favored the cause of labor in any strike, commented, one need not be a sympathizer with trade union policy as it reveals itself today in order to see that the latest injunction, if generally upheld, would seriously cripple such defensive powers as legitimately belong to organized labor. Meanwhile, negotiations were continuing, and on September 2nd, the manufacturer presented a new proposal for a settlement. With additional concessions, the strike committee, supported by only 200 hastily assembled shop chairmen and with a minimum of debate, ratified the first collective bargaining agreement in the industry. No public announcement was made of the agreement, nor were any public assemblies held before the ratification. After nine weeks of bitter negotiations, the Protocol of Peace, as the agreement was called, won for the workers a 50-hour week, bonus pay for overtime, 10 legal holidays, free electric power installation for machines, no homework, weekly pay in cash rather than checks, limitations on overtime, a joint board of sanitary control to help clean up filthy shops, a committee for grievances, and compulsory arbitration, with no strike or lockout permitted before arbitration, and price settlements to be made in each shop by negotiation. As a concession, the manufacturers agreed to exert preference only between one union man and another. Non-union labor could be hired only when union help was unattainable. Despite these important gains, however, the settlement was a disappointment to many workers, largely because it nationalized the preferential union shop. Furthermore, unlike the usual collective bargaining agreement, the protocol had no time limit. It could be terminated by either side at will. Many rank-and-file workers also disapproved of the no-strike clause and the provision for compulsory arbitration. The revolt in the garment trades next shifted to Chicago, where, on September 29, 1910, a small group of courageous women ignited the spark that led from 40,000 unorganized clothing workers to strike. The uprising began when a few women employed in shop number five of Hart, Schaffner, and Mars, the largest clothing factory in the city, walked off the job when their piece rate was arbitrarily cut from four cents to 3.44 cents a pair. One of these girls was Bessie Abramowitz, an immigrant from Gradno in white Russia, who had already been blacklisted in Chicago's clothing shops because of her militancy and was working at Hart, Schaffner, and Mars under an assumed name. Under the leadership of Abramowitz and Annie Shapiro, 12 young women petitioned for a return to the old rate. The walkout gradually spread to other manufacturing houses until the entire industry was paralyzed. With the United Garment Workers indifferent to their struggle, the strikers appealed to the Chicago Women's Trade Union League and the Chicago Federation of Labor for Assistance. At Hart, Schaffner, and Mars, they reported, any worker who damaged a pair of pants was made to buy them at the regular wholesale prices. If the canvas strips accidentally fell to the floor, the foreman fined the canvas makers five cents. Still others complained of the long workday. Some women 
complained about the petty tyrannies practiced by their foreman, who distributed work inequitably and used abusive and insulting language. A children's jacket maker explained that her foreman insisted that she carry a bundle of 350 pairs of sleeves to another room. Although she told him it was too heavy for her to lift from the floor, he insisted. When she lifted the bundle, she injured her back and was unable to work for several weeks. As in the New York strikes, the employers hired detectives and thugs and received the full support of the police. In fact, Chicago's police, long notorious for their brutality towards strikers, were even more barbarous than those in New York. By December, two of the strikers had been gunned down and killed by police bullets, and many more had been injured by club-swinging members of the force. After 40,000 garment workers, 10,000 of them women, had walked off the job, the strikers received a crippling blow from their own union. Thomas Rickert, president of the United Garment Workers, was a conservative, old-line labor leader, interested in developing the union along craft lines. In November, he announced an agreement with Hart, Schaffner, and Mars, but it came short of what the strikers wanted and was unanimously rejected. Then league members and officials of the Chicago Federation of Labor learned that the UGW district's treasury was empty and that union officers' offer to assist the strikers lacked any substance. In fact, the union had issued worthless vouchers for relief to over 10,000 people. Officials of the Chicago Federation of Labor League leaders and now officers then managed to raise $1,700 and proceeded to distribute $13 for each $50 voucher to the angry strikers, as the strikers should be. A union should never say they will do something to their members that they know they can't do. On November 18th, the Joint Conference Board, composed of strike leaders, and representatives of the Chicago Federation of Labor, the WTUL, and the UGW opened four commissary stores to distribute food to the strikers. Four loaves of bread, one pound of coffee, one pound of coffee, a pound of beans, and two pounds of ham per family weekly. After Thanksgiving, herring and codfish replaced the ham to provide for these commissaries, which fed 11,000 families each week. The league raised close to $170,000. On November 5th, Rickert reached an agreement with Hart, Schaffner, and Mars for arbitration of all issues without union recognition. Once again, the workers rejected the proposal, and this time they made their hatred of the national officials so clear that Rickert had to leave the hall by a back door. Thousands of striking cutters, trimmers, and spongers resolved to repudiate the action of Thomas Rickard in signing any agreement without presenting the same for approval. Despite mounting violence against them, on December 8th, the workers again rejected an agreement that would have sent them back to work without union recognition. It took another five weeks of hunger, cold, and violence before the workers of Hart, Schaffner, and Mars on January 14, 1911, reluctantly agreed to go back to work and refer all issues to an arbitration committee. But the other 30,000 strikers maintained their ranks solidly until, on February 3rd, Rickard and his lieutenants, without consulting the strikers, the will or the officials of the Chicago Federation of Labor, declared the strike over. 
Workers return to their jobs without any agreement and with no method of adjusting the grievances that had driven them to strike. Those who had been the most militant of the pickets were not allowed to return to their former jobs. The 25-year-old Sidney Hillman, Frank Rosenblum, Bessie Abramowitz, and Sam Levin had risen to leadership among the workers during the strike, and they recorded that the great majority of the strikers were forced to return to their old miserable conditions through the back door, and happy were those who were taken back. Many were victimized for months afterwards. Members of the WTUL and the Chicago Federation of Labor, who had worked tirelessly for a just settlement, felt as betrayed as the strikers themselves. Only the Hart, Schaffner, and Mars workers operated under a contract as a result of the strike. This contract, drawn up by Clarence Darrow, the famous labor lawyer who had volunteered his services in defense of the strikers, and company attorney Carl Meyer, is historically regarded as the first major victory in the annuals of men's clothing workers' unionism. It established a minimum wage for various departments in the factory, a 54-hour week, and time and a half for overtime. It also presaged future occupational safety and health measures by insisting that all tailor shops be properly ventilated and that no sweeping of a character to raise dust in any of the shops be done during working hours. The agreement provided for overtime pay for extra work and initiated a permanent board of arbitration composed of Darrell and Meyer to hear and rule on future worker grievances. The Chicago workers learned to distrust the national leadership of the United Garment Workers, but they learned to appreciate and respect the contribution of the Women's Trade Union League. The strike also brought a new women labor leadership to the front. The Cleveland strike of 1911 followed the pattern that had emerged in New York and Chicago. Strikes, men and women alike, held out for 10 long weeks to end low pay, unsanitary working conditions, inside subcontracting, and long and irregular hours. The strike began in June when 4,000 men and 1,600 women walked off the job, demanding a 54-hour week, abolition of charges for supplies and electricity, elimination of subcontracting, union recognition, and a permit for at-wage committee composed of workers' representatives, outside arbitrators, and employers for the purpose of establishing a uniform wage scale. As in earlier strikes, the police came to the manufacturer's aid, but in Cleveland, they were even more brutal. The mounted police galloped headlong at the crowds when they first appeared to picket, and hundreds were, who blocked the street fled in terror. They swung their clubs when they reached the crowd and forced their way through, driving scores before them down the streets. Some girls who ran from them were chased for blocks. Pauline Newman, who had been sent to Cleveland by the ILGWU to help the strikers, reported that the spirit manifested by the girl workers in Cleveland was an inspiration to the entire labor movement. As in other strikes in the garment trade, young women assumed positions of leadership. Florence Shaler, a young Italian woman who supported her family with her job, served as secretary of the Italian strikers. Rebecca Saul, spokeswoman for the Jewish women strikers, ran strike headquarters every day from 5 a.m. to 10 or 11 p.m., coordinating the pickets and arranging for speakers to visit shop meetings. When Pauline arrived in Cleveland, 
she was met at the train by 50 young women who assured her that they were prepared to hold out despite increasing police violence and arrests. Secretary Treasurer Deich called on Margaret Robbins for aid, and the WTUL leader visited the city to appeal to Cleveland's club women for their support of the strike. In addition, she organized a successful strikers parade and a number of citizens' meetings. Josephine Casey, another WTUL leader, also hurried to Cleveland to aid the strikers, while Gertrude Burnham toured the Midwest under ILGWU auspices, encouraging consumers and retailers to boycott Cleveland-made garments. In desperation, the ILGWU turned to the AFL Executive Council for assistance pleading. For 14 weeks, the strikers have maintained their ranks unbroken. The strike already cost over a quarter of a million dollars, almost all of which has been contributed by members and locals of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. The Cleveland strikers are ready to keep up the fight until the principle of collective bargaining is recognized by the employers. Be prompt with your aid, lest the employers starve us into submission. But the AFL Executive Board remained deaf to the appeal, and so writes Elizabeth McCreesh, despite the strikers' heroism and valuable support from sympathizers and union officials, organized manufacturers succeeded in holding the union movement among Cleveland's garment workers. Milwaukee's garment workers were more successful in their strike. For good reason, of all the garment workers' strikes of the period, only the one in Milwaukee was not accompanied by police violence against pickets and unjustified arrests and imprisonment, largely because of the election of Emil Sedell, a socialist as mayor, on the eve of the strike, which broke out later in November 1910. The police chief, a holdover from the previous administration, ordered the customary police brutality towards the pickets, whereupon Mayor Sedell addressed an official letter to him. Complaints have been made here that disemployed citizens have recently been subjected to abusive epitaphs and rough handling by policemen. Whatever may be the basis of these complaints, I want it understood that no man on the police force has the right to interfere with a citizen who is not violating the law. I expect you, as chief of police, to make clear to the members of your department that as long as a citizen is within his legal rights, he should not be manhandled or insulted. Officers tolerating such tactics and patrolmen practicing them will be held accountable. Hoping that reports referred to, well, on investigation, proved to be exaggerated. Most of the women workers who spearheaded the strike in the garment industries of New York, Chicago, Cleveland, and Milwaukee were immigrant back had immigrant backgrounds. However, non-immigrant women in the industry also demonstrated the willingness to fight for their rights and for unionism. All the women corset workers of Kalamazoo, Michigan, who struck in 1912, were born in the United States, and in this community of 30 of 35,000 inhabitants, fully half the citizens belong to families supported by one or more factory workers. After a spontaneous strike in 1911 to protest wage reduction, wage reductions, the strike leaders formed local H82 of the ILGWU. Then in February 1912, officials of the Kalamazoo 
corset company refused to negotiate a contract with the union and discharged a number of women employees, accusing them of disloyalty. 600 angry women workers declared a strike, demanding reinstatement of their discharged colleagues, a wage increase, and a reduction of the weekly work hours. Once the strike was underway, the women added new charges against the employers. They complained that the foreman awarded the more desirable job to those women who acquiesced to their sexual advances and neglected to collect charges from their favorites. Many girls signed affidavits describing unsanitary conditions, inadequate toilet facilities, and filthy communal drinking cups. Others testified to their supervisor's obsession with achieving sexual relations with the women workers. The management of that concern is ran by superintendents, some of them diseased and filthy, whose minds are occupied more with carnal pleasure than the, with the business of the firm. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening. (music) 